This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 84th episode of the podcast. Today is March 3rd, and before we get into the politics, I want to thank these individuals for joining the independent progressive media revolution. So I want to send a thank you to Robert Pope Jr., Parham Pulati, Salvatore Russo, Timothy Bradley, John Romeo, Michael Slobodzian, Nicholas, and Patrick Cheek. So all of these individuals decided to support the program either by becoming members on HumanistReport.com, signing up to be Patreon patrons, or submitting a donation to us via PayPal. So if you would like to support the show, you can visit the links down below in the description box, but you don't even have to give us money to support the Humanist Report. You can simply like our videos, share our videos, or if you even disable ad block on our YouTube channel, even though YouTube's ads are incredibly obnoxious, that is one way to support the show. So on today's episode. We've got several topics that I want to get into. So first of all, I'll debunk the myth perpetuated by the establishment that the left is unified. I'll also talk about the aftermath of the DNC chair race, including how Tom Perez is fitting into his new role as leader of the Democratic Party. Also, Democrats still want Bernie Sanders' email list, but he is not budging, so I'll talk about that. And additionally, I'll discuss Jeff Sessions' controversy and how he might have inadvertently saved marijuana from himself. And speaking of marijuana, I'll talk about how Tulsi Gabbard came up with the bill to end the federal prohibition of marijuana once and for all. We'll also talk about how the billionaires are taking over the Democratic Party and President Trump's wretched plans to gut Medicaid and increase defense spending. Finally, I'll talk about the FCC chairman's recent comments that indicate that the internet as we know it is, in fact, doomed. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in because I have The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild to play and I want to get this over with. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, but seriously, I'm excited about Zelda. But let's get to the politics first. So we all know that the Democratic Party is hemorrhaging support currently because they refuse to be the party of the working class again. So of all times, now is the time to take the party in a radically different direction, yet the party chose to make Tom Perez the DNC chair. Tom Perez is a pro-TPP soft on Wall Street corporatist who is the establishment. The fact that he won was another slap in the face to progressives, but to make matters worse, to add insult to injury, immediately after making him the DNC chair, they voted down a new policy that would have prohibited lobbyist contributions to the DNC. They are completely shameless. And yet, Keith Ellison had the nerve to send out an email to his constituents begging for money on behalf of the Democratic Party. Well, here's my response. I'm going to give them the same response that they've given to progressives. Now, it gets even worse. There were candidates from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party that were running at all levels of the DNC, so from vice chair to finance chair. Now, how many of those people from the Bernie wing actually was elected? Absolutely nobody. Progressives were shut out of the DNC at every single level. But in spite of that, Tom Perez is alleging that now is the time for the party to reach out to voters in every state. You know, we can't leave anyone out. After shunning half of the base, you know, we have to reach out to people now. President Trump told CPAC on Friday 
that the Republican Party from now on will be the party of the American worker. And in November, mm -hmm. President Trump carried white voters without a college degree, working class voters, by a staggering 37 percentage points. What is your plan to win mm -hmm. these voters back into the Democratic fold? We, we lead with our values and we lead with our actions. We talk to them about how literally hours into the Trump administration, he was a fraud. He made it harder for first-time home buyers to buy a home hours into administ his administration. Days later, he made it harder to save for retirement. He nominates a justice, a judge for the Supreme Court who wants to eviscerate collective bargaining. When we lead with our values as Democrats and talk about what we've done to make sure we're protecting Social Security, protecting Medicare, growing good jobs in this economy, if you want good jobs, elect a Democrat. That's the message that we have to communicate. It's a message that is true. It resonates in every zip code, and, and that's what we're going to be doing all over this nation, leading with our values, leading with the facts. And the facts are Democrats grow the middle class, Democrats protect economic security, and we need to do a better job of communicating that message everywhere. So here we go again. Yes, Donald Trump is bad. There's not going to be one progressive that disagrees with you here. And even though that's the one area where the Bernie and Hillary Clinton wings of the party will find common ground, we need more than this, Tom. We need more than this. You said we lead with our values. We lead with our actions. Is that so? Well, literally just the other day, you voted to strike down a ban on lobbyist contributions. How's that for leading with your actions? What message does that send to the voters that you're trying to communicate? It's just absurd to me. And he talks about leading with values. Tom, what are those values? You touch on Social Security. You touch on creating jobs. How are you going to do that? What's your message? You have no message. This is Tom Perez's message in a nutshell so far. I know you're probably reluctant to criticize Hillary Clinton, but are you of the opinion that her campaign did not talk about those economic values sufficiently, instead focusing on the perceived character flaws of the current president? Well, certainly we have to do a better job um, as a Democratic Party of messaging what we stand for. We have to make sure that we're out there everywhere talking about how we're the party of good job creation. We're the party of middle class security. We're the party of inclusion. We believe our diversity is our greatest strength. And when we lead with these values, I believe we succeed. When we lead with those values, we succeed. Again, I don't know what values you're trying to communicate to us because at every step of the way, you've shown to us that you value money over voters. You value the donors over the people who come out and support you religiously every election, and yet you still manage to close the door on them and give them the middle finger, Tom. And look, this would be amazing, saying that we need to lead with those values, and when we do, we succeed. That would be an amazing platitude to espouse if you were the keynote speaker at a high school graduation, but you're not. You're the head of the main resistance to Donald Trump now, Tom. We need more than platitudes. We need an actual plan as to how you're going to win back the working class voters that the party alienated over the course of the last several decades, over the course of the last eight years. So here's what you can do. You can say, look, as a party of the working people, we are the party that puts our voters above our donors. So we are no longer going to accept money from the health insurance industry, and we will make it our number one goal to make sure that no American will ever go bankrupt or die because they have inadequate health insurance again. Never again will this happen. This will be the number one goal of the Democratic Party. We will fight for a single-payer health care system. That 
would galvanize working class voters to support you because you're giving them something. This is a substantive policy that will resonate. You can say, look, I am done with the war on drugs. We will legalize marijuana in all 50 states. This will be the goal. And if you elect Democrats, that will be one of the first orders of business for us. We will get legal marijuana in all 50 states. You bring on young people that way. You bring on conservatives and libertarians that way. But they don't know what to do. They say, you know, we, we want to lead by our values. We're not going to tell you what those values are, but just support us anyway. And if you don't support us, we're going to shame you. If you go third party and vote for Jill Stein because we're not doing it for you, well, then we're going to shame you. Well, how about this? How about you offer us something? Offer us something that will excite us. There's a reason why Bernie Sanders had so much millennials, how he created a brand new movement. It's because he offered us something that would actually benefit our lives. Incremental change, cracking down on Wall Street, just a little bit here and there, that's not going to do it for us. We need dramatic change. And this is why people that voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 flipped and went to Donald Trump because they saw that the Democratic Party wasn't doing it. And even if Donald Trump was a disaster of a candidate, they just wanted change. And maybe throwing a brick through the window of the establishment was exactly what they wanted. Now, I disagree with that choice. But you've got to give the voters something, Tom. You need a message, and you have nothing at this point. You continue to insist that we're unified. You continue to talk about Russia. It's time you reach out to voters and actually communicate these values to voters that you keep championing. What are those values? Tell us, Tom. But you're not doing that. You're a failure. So as the new DNC chair, Tom Perez is faced with the task of polishing the gigantic turd known as the Democratic Party. So this will be an uphill battle because currently nobody trusts the DNC. Nobody believes that the Democratic Party is actually the party of the working people like they were when FDR was president. So this is going to be a really difficult Thing for him to do. It's seemingly impossible at this point. However, he's getting right to work. Now, for Tom Perez's first order of business, he's choosing to emphasize an issue that I assure you will definitely bring back a majority of the people that the Democratic Party lost over the last eight years. What we need to be looking at is whether this election was rigged by Donald Trump and his buddy Vladimir Putin. And I'll tell you, having Jeff Sessions oversee such an investigation, it's really unfair to any Foxes across America to say that would be the fox guarding the hen house. We need an independent investigation because that is a serious, serious issue. And the American people need to understand whether the Russians in cahoots with the Trump folks and others rigged the election. Brilliant. That was great, Tom. I'm sure that all of the poor Americans who have to stand outside of food banks in the cold to make sure that they're one of the first to arrive so they can get a loaf of bread for their family, I'm sure that those people are definitely going to care about the Democratic Party's new McCarthyism and their red scare that they're trying to perpetuate. I'm sure that it's not the issues that they care about. I'm sure focusing disproportionately on Russia is definitely a winning strategy for you. So now to kind of contextualize what he's saying here, just so that way we really understand how absurd it is. Well, Donald Trump colluded with Vladimir Putin allegedly to rig the election against Hillary Clinton by releasing emails that exposed how the DNC rigged an election for Hillary Clinton. That's what he's saying here, effectively. Tom, you claim that the Democratic primary wasn't rigged. So if the DNC didn't actually rig the primary against Bernie Sanders, then the emails that you claim were released by Russia shouldn't have any impact, right? 
Because the emails didn't reveal anything then, right? But yet, you still maintain that Russia rigged the election against Hillary Clinton. But yet, the DNC did nothing to rig the election against Bernie Sanders. Interesting. So if the DNC violates its own charter and tries to sabotage the campaign of Bernie Sanders, if the DNC colludes with Hillary Clinton's campaign early on to give her an early advantage to literally create rules that would benefit her and disadvantage her opponents, you know... There's no problem with that. If they disenfranchise their own voters, millions of their own voters, there's absolutely no problem with that. There's no rigging there. However, exposing that information, exposing what the Democratic Party did, that's where we have a problem. So, I mean, this whole conversation is absurd. Russia rigged the election because they exposed how the DNC rigged the election. Do you understand what you're saying and how stupid this is? And furthermore, even if we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Russia did, in fact tried to influence the election in favor of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, do you honestly think that the Americans who are hurting right now, who are trying to survive off of $7.25 an hour, really are going to care about this? Do you not think that policies will resonate more with the American people? It just seems like a failed strategy to me. But I mean, if you think that that's the last you heard from Tom Perez about Russia, you're horribly mistaken. You're, you're now seeing Republicans call for a special investigation of what happened in the run-up to the election. And I think there has to be an independent investigation. You can't have um, the attorney general who was out on the stump for the president um, doing that investigation. That, that's disrespectful to all foxes to call it the fox guarding the hen house. And uh, we have to make sure that it, it is fair and independent. If the, if the um, tables had been turned and Hillary Clinton had won the presidency with the help of Donald Trump, or with, with the help of Putin, I, I confuse Putin and Trump because they're so similar, and, um, and, and uh, the, the help of all this hacking, the Republicans, you know, how many Benghazi hearings did they have? Fifteen? I mean, they, there would have been articles of impeachment filed already. Oh, look, he used the fox guarding the hen house analogy again. Brilliant. So, what Debbie Wasserman Schultz is saying here, I mean, what Tom is saying here, I'm sorry, I confused the two because they're so similar, is that if the shoe was on the other foot and Republicans tipped the scales against Hillary Clinton, well, then there would be universal outrage. Well, let me ask you this, Tom. You claim that Hillary Clinton won fair and square. So let me ask you whether or not this is fair and square and why there's no outrage from you. So the DNC coordinated with Hillary Clinton's campaign to limit the number of debates to six, and then they created the exclusivity clause so her opponents would be hidden away from the public. This literally banned them from participating in non-DNC sanctioned debates. The DNC also moved red states up on the primary schedule so Hillary Clinton would garner an early lead, thus demoralizing the supporters of her inevitable opponents. She also lobbied and effectively bought off superdelegates so that way they would endorse her early on. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, she did all of this because her 2008 campaign co-chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, was overseeing the election. This created a conflict of interest, and then that same individual who oversaw her 2008 campaign tried to sabotage Bernie Sanders by working with DNC insiders to create negative stories about Bernie Sanders that they would then give to the press. Also, Debbie Wasserman Schultz raided funds from state parties so that way she could give them to Hillary Clinton, who was also laundering money in state parties for her campaign. Now, Tom Perez should know about all of this because he worked with Hillary Clinton's campaign to create the narrative that Bernie Sanders only did well among white liberals. And this was after just two primaries. So early on, he was looking to demonize Bernie Sanders and he reached out to Hillary Clinton 
to explain how he can change the narrative to Bernie Sanders does well among young people to Bernie Sanders only does well among white young people. Now, thousands of registered Democrats were purged from voting rolls in pro-Bernie districts in New York, for example. Also, Bernie Sanders had to basically win double the pledged delegates in order to become the Democratic Party nominee because superdelegates all pledged to back Hillary Clinton. So when Bernie won New Hampshire by more than 20%. Hillary Clinton still got more delegates when you include supers. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz defended closed primaries. She shut out independent voters. This is a demographic that's most likely to be young, and it's also a demographic that disproportionately favored Bernie Sanders. But in spite of all of those facts, Tom Perez insists that Hillary Clinton won fair and square. And if you expose those facts, if you expose what the Democratic Party did to destroy Bernie Sanders, that's the rigging. All of these things that I just mentioned, that's not rigging. Exposing these things, that's rigging. That's tipping the scales against Hillary Clinton. But all the things that the DNC and the Democratic Party establishment did to Bernie Sanders, that's not rigging. That's not tipping the scales against Bernie Sanders. You have a really twisted way of looking at things, and your definition of rigged is really dubious because I don't think you know what that word means. I mean, you did admit for a short period of time that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders, and then you immediately said that you misspoke and that Hillary Clinton won fair and square, and actually, you now claim that the election was rigged against Hillary Clinton. This is the chairman of the Democratic Party. He's the leader of the Democratic Party. He is the main opposition. He is the head of the resistance to Donald Trump. This person, this is the person who was supposed to bring back the voters that the Democratic Party lost. This is the person that Obama pushed forward to be the new DNC chair when he saw that Keith Ellison was gaining momentum because he didn't want the Bernie Sanders wing of the party to take over. Good job, because you just screwed yourself, Democrats. This is your new leader. This is the resistance to Donald Trump. I, ca I can't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth. This guy, this weasel is supposed to take on Donald Trump. He can't even answer a question. So what, is he going to run away from Donald Trump if Donald Trump poses a tough question to him? Because that's how we've seen him operate. He was asked about his position on Palestinian human rights and he ran away from the reporter. This is the opposition to Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, we are screwed. You want to hear a joke? The Democratic Party is united. Now, that's a joke because in spite of the fact that for a second time in one year, the Democratic Party establishment has given progressives the middle finger, they rejected Keith Ellison and Sam Ronan, and they immediately struck down a proposed ban on lobbyist contributions to the DNC, so they basically don't want anything to do with us, yet in spite of their reluctance, we'll say, to embrace progressives, and really all that we're asking them to do is cut out corporate contributions to the party, well... They're claiming that the party is unified and that there's absolutely no division and that we're all one big happy family again. So, for example, the new DNC chair has a picture of him and his good friend that the establishment slandered at his behest so he could get the job. So that picture is supposed to indicate unity between the Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders wings of the party. And if it looks to you as though Tom Perez is just dragging Keith Ellison along and that he's not actually miserable, well, apparently Keith Ellison can also confirm that the Democratic Party has, in fact, united now. I mean, look at Keith's face. That's not the face of a man whose soul was just crushed, now is it? <laughs>
Now, Nancy Pelosi is excited to meet with the new DNC leaders to discuss how the party can unite going forward. That's a big joke. And you just know that the party is unified if the person who divided it thinks it is. And Peter Dow, perhaps the biggest establishment cheerleader on Twitter, says that it's unified, even though he continues to berate progressives at every chance he gets. But, you know, it's unified, everyone. We're all one big happy family. There's no problems here. Nothing to see. Go home. And Tom Perez is confident that the party's united, too. And he's talking a big game to Donald Trump, saying that Democrats are united, and that's his biggest nightmare. And he likes that line so much that he said it a thousand times, and now the party itself is saying it because they apparently really like it, too. Our unity as a, a party is our greatest strength. And it's his worst nightmare. So according to the Democratic Party establishment, the party is united. The Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders wings of the party came together to coalesce around our anti-Trump agenda. But that's just simply not true. They're ignoring the fact that they shunned progressives not once but twice. And they're also ignoring the fact that millions of progressives re-registered as independents once the party abandoned them and shunned them. Now, apparently, the establishment needs a little refresher because prior to the election, they also claimed that the party was united then, too. So we had W. Wasserman Schultz contend that, yes, Democrats are united and the Republican Party is in shambles. We had pro-Clinton media outlets report that the party was surprisingly united and even back then we told you that we weren't united but you insisted that it was united and did nothing to win back the voters you disenfranchised but look how it turned out so no matter how many times the democratic party wants to think and say that we're united we're not united and in fact I have a problem even saying we because I don't consider myself a Democrat anymore because the party is so corrupt I don't want that tainted label attached to my name so Saying it over and over, you know, that's not going to wish it into existence. That's not the way that life works. I wish it was. The universe doesn't operate that way. You don't make something true by saying it over and over again. By claiming that the party is united, you're giving us another example as to how you refuse to listen to us. Because time and again, we're telling you that we're not united and we refuse to unite behind corporatists, but you refuse to listen to us. Well, let me set the record straight for Democrats. Progressives refuse to unite behind a corrupt corporatist party until you guys wean yourself off of the corporate teat. I am done hearing Republican talking points from so-called liberals who continue to bullshit us when it comes to single-payer healthcare, and we know that you don't like single-payer healthcare because you take money from the health insurance industry. I'm done with that. I refuse to get behind a party that refuses to endorse an idea that would save lives and save people from bankruptcy. I refuse to support a party that continues to support war. No more wars. Yet, we have a Democratic Party establishment that continues to accept money from defense contractors, that continues to be almost as warmongering as Republicans. And you're supposed to be the Dove Party. Republicans are the ones that's supposed to be warhawks. It's unacceptable, and I refuse to unite behind that. So until you get that through your thick skulls, there will never be unity. And the fact that you keep contending that there is unity is, quite frankly, it's pretty fucking insulting to me. We're not united. We don't like you. We want nothing to do with you. And here's what we're doing now. We're leaving the party, and we will not come back into the party until justice Democrats take it over or until the party unites behind our progressive party that we're leaving the party for. So the party's not united. You can keep saying it, but it's not true. 
the election of Tom Perez, I think, was probably the last nail in the Democratic Party's coffin because they sent American voters a really clear message. They told every single voter that they don't represent the voters. They represent large multinational corporations and the billionaires that finance them. And this was a message that wasn't just implicit. This was explicit because... They literally, just hours after electing Tom Perez as the new chairman of the party, they voted down a ban on lobbyist contributions to the party. Think of the optics here. They are saying, no, we are not going to stop the money from large corporations from funding us. Even though our base disproportionately cares about money in politics, we no longer are going to advocate against legalized bribery. We're no longer going to talk about Citizens United. So they've embraced corruption. Let's be clear, they embraced corruption, and now what the party is about is not about representing you, it's not about representing me, it's about representing the elites, and the reason why they're doing this is not because they care about the elites, they're doing this because they want money. It's all about the money, and you don't have to take my word for it, you could take the word of DNC insiders who admitted that it's just about the money to them. I am so proud to have been your treasurer for the last 18 years, and... I am, I am so excited to do everything I can to help our amazing new chair, Tom Perez, and our amazing new deputy chair, Keith Ellison, to move forward. We have so much work to do. It's been such an honor working with chairs like Donna Brazil and Howard Dean, who's in the room. This has been 18 years I wouldn't trade for anything. But it's my obligation to step down because we need somebody who has the energy and the fresh perspective to tackle this thing. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be asking everybody, all of you I've been hitting up for money, I'm going to keep hitting up for money. But I was determined to try to find someone who could do it better and with more energy. And I found him. And his name is Bill Darrow. And he's got a great democratic story. He has an amazing success. He's exactly the person who can go to rich business folks and explain to them why it's the Democratic Party under which they will make the most money and succeed. And by the way, give some of it to us. Give some of it to us. Give some of it to us. So that was Andrew Tobias. He's been the DNC treasurer since 1999, and I want to reiterate what he said here. He said uh, that the new DNC treasury secretary can go to rich business folks and explain to them why it's the Democratic Party under which they will make the most money and succeed. And by the way, give us some of that. Now, what he's saying here is that, you know, the Democratic Party will help you to succeed because we're going to give you certain perks if you donate to us. So we will maybe roll back your taxes. We will reduce some regulations that are bogging you down. We'll make it so that way you can exploit your workers and not raise the minimum wage. Uh, and we'll be okay with that so long as you continue to give us money. And by the way, give us some money. Have you heard? We're looking for some money. So, I mean... They're just openly flaunting the fact that they're all about the money. This wasn't a closed-door meeting. This was public. This was on Fox News. The DNC treasurer gloating about he wants someone who's going to be the new treasury secretary of the DNC to go to rich people and beg them for money because a Democratic Party is going to do good things for rich people. And yet, what's hilarious to me is that they continue... To make no secret about the fact that they want Bernie Sanders' email list. They want Bernie Sanders' email list so that way all of the millions of people who donated to Bernie Sanders, well, they can exploit those people for money. So they're going to take money from billionaires and then they have the nerve to ask working people to finance their campaigns as well. Well, this is what I have to say to you. If you want my money, 
You're not getting it. Go to the billionaire donors that you've cozied up with. Go to the elites. Go to the rich. Because apparently they've been serving you so well. So you don't need us, right? You've told us that you don't need us. You've communicated to us time and again that you want nothing to do with progressives. And it's not even just about progressives. It's about reasonable people who want to get money out of politics, who don't think it's fair for American citizens to go bankrupt or die if they don't have health insurance. We're asking for something that every other modern nation has, universal health care. We're asking to get money out of politics. These are things that the, that the Democratic Party should be cheerleading, but they're not. They're so corrupt, they don't care. And here's the thing, you can continue to search for money, but it's not going to serve you well. Hillary Clinton outraised Donald Trump by almost a two-to-one margin. And look what happened. She lost. So you can continue to choose money over voters, but guess what? You're going to continue to lose. And you flaunting the fact that you don't care about voters, that you are cozying up with elites, it's not doing you any good. So please continue to be corrupt because you're only fueling the fire of people who want to start a brand new party. And you're only encouraging justice Democrats to take over the party because you don't deserve power. You've bungled the power that you have. You're in a position right now that is really important of all times. We have Donald Trump as president and you are choosing to shun voters and turn away half the base. You are shameless. Any person in the DNC who voted against Keith Ellison or Sam Ronan, anyone in the DNC who voted down the ban on lobbyist contributions, they need to be fired immediately. And I love how, you know, um, during the debate, you can watch the footage from TYT Politics. There were some DNC members who were talking about, well, you know, when we talk about corporations, you know, I don't want to ban money from all corporations because there's a lot of small corporations as well. We're talking about the large corporations. We're not talking about working class business owners. We're talking about the large corporations. Payday lenders that bought off the last DNC chair. We're talking about defense contractors. We're talking about these consultants that the Democratic Party spends billions hiring that just, <laughs> they're apparently not doing you any good. So, I mean, look, continue to keep your heads up your asses. But, you know, you're going to realize that if you abandon voters, you will not win elections. Get it together. So I want to talk about Alan Dershowitz for a moment. So Alan Dershowitz is a Harvard Law professor who's also a Democratic Party smear merchant who throughout the course of the DNC chair race, he insisted that Keith Ellison is anti-Semitic. Now, the reason for this is because of Keith Ellison's former association with Louis Farrakhan, in his college days. But to someone like Alan Dershowitz, any and all criticism of Israel is tantamount to bigotry. So, for example, if I were to say and uh, declare that I support Palestinian human rights and I condemn illegal settlements that the Israeli government continues to build, he would claim that I'm anti-Semitic because of that. So this is the type of person that we're dealing with. Israel is allowed to commit war crimes and violate international law, and if you criticize them, you're an anti-Semite. Now, what's interesting to me is that Keith Ellison could have flipped it around and claimed that Alan Dershowitz was an anti-Muslim bigot, but 
Keith Ellison chose to take the high road, and I don't think it behooved him to do this. I think that he should have fought fire with fire, and this smear campaign waged against him by people like Alan Dershowitz, in part, is why Keith Ellison lost. Now, Alan Dershowitz went on Fox News to gloat about how Keith Ellison was defeated, and in the process, he said some other things that I think were really, really stupid. The election of Tom Perez, is this a real directional change, more more moderate to the establishment in charge, or is this just a last gasp of the Clinton-Obama uh, regime, but the, the party really does want to move further left? And are you staying in the party? Well, I think I'm staying in the party because Ellison was defeated, and the Ellison defeat is a victory in the war against bigotry, anti-Semitism, the anti-Israel push of the hard left within the Democratic Party. Look, I wish that Perez hadn't appointed Ellison to any position in the Democratic Party, but I'm going to stay in the Democratic Party and work to try to move it toward the center, to try to move it away from the hard left, to try to move it away from its uh, twist toward uh, uh, opposition to Israel and toward American values. It's going to be an uphill fight, but I'm there to fight uh, that battle. We won this battle. We won the battle when at the uh, convention they tried to put an anti-Israel uh, uh, element in the platform. We won that narrowly. So I think we can still wi uh, uh, fight and win for centrist values. Look, the Democrats are marginalizing themselves. They, they have to understand we are not a hard left country. When the Democrats nominated McGovern, when they nominated Dukakis, when they nominated Walter Mondale, the three of them together didn't get enough electoral votes to win one election. You'd think they'd learn the lesson that they have to move to the center. We are a centrist country. And I worry that the Republicans are moving too far right in some place. The Democrats are moving too far left. It's happening in Europe. We have to return to the vital center and have debates between centrist liberals and centrist conservatives. That's where our country is. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. So I honestly lost count as to how many dumb things he said in that short clip. So he says... Uh, there's this anti-Israel push with the hard left of the party. Uh, Alan, nobody's anti-Israel. We all support a two-state solution, meaning we support a Palestinian and an Israeli state. We're not calling for the abolition of the Israeli state. We're saying that we do not support the right-wing government in Israel that continues to break international law and violate Palestinian human rights. Saying that doesn't make us anti-Israel. It makes us reasonable human beings. And I also speak out against the actions of the U.S. military as well. When my government commits war crimes, when my government breaks international law, I speak out against it. Does that make me anti-American? No, it makes me a reasonable human being that cares about the well-being of others. But yet, According to Alan Dershowitz, you're anti-Israel, you're a bigot if you condemn war crimes against human beings. Now, he also said, I'm going to stay in the Democratic Party and work to try to move it towards the center, to move it away from the hard left, to move it away from the twist towards opposition towards Israel. If your goal is to move the Democratic Party to the center, you're done. You could pack it up and go home because the Democratic Party is a centrist party. And if most Democrats in Congress now aren't centrist enough for you, then you're just advocating for a party full of blue dog Democrats. You're a conservative. Just admit it. Leave the party. You are a conservative. And then he also states, we won the battle when at the convention, the hard left tried to put an anti-Israel element in the platform. We won that narrowly. Hey, why don't you tell us, Alan, what this anti-Israel element of the platform would have been? Tell us how it's anti-Israel. Because I'm going to tell you, because he didn't want to tell you why it's anti-Israel. This provision in the platform, it would have condemned 
Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine and condemned their illegal settlements on Palestinian land. How is that anti-Israel? See, I'm getting to think that you're anti-Palestinian. I'm starting to think that you hate Muslims. Is that why you were smearing Keith Ellison? Is this really about anti-Semitism? Is this really about being anti-Israel? Maybe you have your own bias. So as you claim that others are bigoted, maybe you should look in the fucking mirror, Alan. Now, he also states the Democrats keep marginalizing themselves. They have to understand we are not a hard left country. And then he brings up uh, McGovern and Dukakis and how they failed miserably and says you'd think that they'd learn their lesson that they have to move to the center. You just ran a centrist candidate and lost. You just did that. Did you not learn your lesson? And furthermore, he's bringing up candidates that lost before people like me were even born. George McGovern. Nobody who's young knows who George McGovern is. This is a new day and age. This is a new era in American politics. And when you say that we're not a hard left country, what he's referring to here is Bernie Sanders. He's saying that we're not a hard left country and by and large, Americans disagree with the policies of Bernie Sanders. Well, let's look into that. So Bernie wants to get money out of politics because money has too much influence on our elections. The New York Times and CBS did a poll and found out that 66% of the country believes that the wealthy has more influence than everyone else. And 84% think that money plays too big of a role in elections. Looks like they agree with Bernie Sanders here, Alan. Also, Bernie Sanders supports a Medicare for all healthcare system. So does 58% of the country, according to Gallup. Now, Bernie Sanders also supports tuition-free education at public colleges and universities. Oh, look at that. So does 62% of the country. So, I hate to break it to you, Alan, but the country agrees with Bernie Sanders. Hence why, when you look at public opinion polls, he was defeating Donald Trump by a 10-point margin on average. And, you know, getting to this issue of tuition-free college education... He's suggesting here that we're unreasonable for wanting that, but let me tell you how selfish Alan Dershowitz is. So back in the day when Alan Dershowitz was a young man, when he was my age, because he's educated, he has his PhD, the government subsidized public education a lot more than they do today. And even if you couldn't afford tuition back then, you would take out a student loan and you would be able to pay it off within years. And you also had more opportunities to get a job if you did graduate. But nowadays, what we're asking for, we're saying we just want to return to that era where the government funded education more, where they actually subsidized the cost of college tuition so that way the cost doesn't just keep skyrocketing every single year. So what Alan Dershowitz is telling my generation is, you know what? My generation, we got ours. So now all of you can fuck off. All you millennials who are in debt, who have to go to college, but you have less opportunities than my generation had. Well, you know what? I don't care about your generation because my generation was able to go to college because the government subsidized education more. And if you ask for the federal government to subsidize college education more, you're unreasonable. You're the hard left and people disagree with you. So back in my day, which was about 205 years ago, it was okay for the government to subsidize education. But nowadays... It's not okay. This elitist snob here actually has the audacity to tell us that what we're asking for, which is a return to the policies back in the day that made it so easy for people from Alan Dershowitz's generation to go to college, we're asking for a return to that, but yet we're unreasonable. I find that so insulting. You're a snob, Alan Dershowitz. You are a complete elitist prick. Now, he also states, and I worry that the Republicans are moving too far right and the Democrats are moving too far left. We have to return to the vital center. This is something that frustrates me so much. And the fact that it's coming from a professor at Harvard Law 
it's really troubling to me. This is not how ideological shifts work, Alan. Maybe you should go talk to someone in the political science department at Harvard because you're out of your league here. There's never a time when you're in a two-party system where the parties will move away from each other. They move with each other. That's how ideological shifts work. So the reason why the Democratic Party is moving to the right is because the Republican Party continues to move to the right. And I mean, you're a professor, Alan. How do you not know this already? How do you not know how ideological shifts work? How do you not know how party politics work? They're never going to move apart from each other. They're always going to be in sync with each other. And if one party moves right, the other's going to move right. That's the way it works, Alan. How could you say that with a straight face? That's so stupid. Even if it's the case that he's right and Democrats are moving to the left, which they're not, wouldn't you want to cater to that huge open portion of the electorate? Millennials who are, by and large, registered now as independents, wouldn't you want to try to bring them in? Well, Alan Dershowitz doesn't seem to think so. They do not have to try to attack the Jill Stein Green Party voters. Those people, those extremists, will never vote for a liberal Democrat because nobody will ever be far enough left for them. They have to attract people in middle America. They have to attract the people they lost in the last election in Minnesota and Michigan and Pennsylvania. And Keith Ellison's not going to do that. He will alienate all those people. So it was a smart move on the part of the Democratic, quote, establishment to move slightly to the center, but I'm worried that the pressure from the Sanders wing is still going to push. Well, we're not just going to push the Democratic Party still, Alan. We're going to take over the Democratic Party. And as a Jill Stein extremist, I've already shown to you that uh, the American people, they're on my side when it comes to tuition-free college. They're on my side when it comes to a single-payer healthcare system and getting money out of politics. They agree with me, not you. So if you honestly think that centrism is the solution when centrism is what pushed millions of progressives out of the party, then you're more out of touch than I thought. You are clueless, Alan, and the fact that you're a law professor at Harvard, you should be embarrassed to be espousing so much bullshit. You know nothing. So we all know that the Democratic Party has made it no secret that they want Bernie Sanders' email list because they see that as an opportunity to raise millions of dollars off of Bernie Sanders' loyal supporters. Now, even though they've communicated to us time and again that they have no interest in representing us, they still want that list because they think maybe they can exploit us. Well, let me ask you, sir, because you have a massive email list that helped your presidential campaign raise $218 million online from 2.8 million donors are you going to give your list to the Democratic National Committee so that you can help them become more grassroots? We are going to do everything that we can. and We have started that progress to transform the Democratic Party into a party that stands up for working families. And we have and we will strongly support those candidates who are going to take on the issues of income and wealth inequality. They're going to take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry. Those people who want to make public colleges and universities tuition-free, who understand, unlike President Trump, that climate change is real and that we've got to transform our energy system. So we're going to work to support progressives who are running for the Senate, who are running for the House, who are running, and Tom Prez made this point, for school board, for city council, for state legislature. I'm right now in Kansas. Last night, we had 5,000 people coming out in Topeka, Kansas. Kansas is not a Democratic stronghold. But we're beginning to see an activation here in Kansas and in states 
and communities all over this country, people who are prepared to take on Trump, people who are prepared to fight for progressive change. So I love how uh, Jake Tapper asked him just a really simple question. It was a yes or no question. And Bernie Sanders went on this long tangent and just basically avoided the question. And, you know, Jake Tapper stated here that this list would help the Democratic Party because, hey, Bernie, if you want them to become more grassroots, then wouldn't this list help them become grassroots because they could raise money off of people on this list? Really, Jake? Really? If the Democratic Party wants to become more grassroots, then they do that by creating their own list. You don't get to just be grassroots by taking Bernie Sanders' list and exploiting the people you continue to shun. You become grassroots by creating your own list. Bernie Sanders did it, so it's certainly not impossible. All you have to do is represent the voters as opposed to the donors and show to us that you're not going to take corporate money, and voila, you get a lot of money from everyday Americans, but they don't want to do that, so you don't get our list. Now, of course, Bernie Sanders dodged the question, and typically I really hate question dodges, but I like it in this case because I want Bernie Sanders to give them the runaround, even though an unequivocal no would be better, but, I mean, Jake Tapper followed up. He asked them again, Bernie, is it a yes or a no? That sounded like you were saying that you're going to keep your EMLS to support the candidates that you think are progressives, and you're not going to give it to the Democratic National Committee did I interpret that incorrectly? Well, where we are right now is that we are going to support and have supported and will continue to support those candidates who have the guts to stand up for working families and take on the big money interests, the people around Donald Trump. You know, I got to, I, Jake, when you talk, when, when, when President Trump talks about being the party of working people, man, he has certainly put together an administration of working people. He has more billionaires, more millionaires in his cabinet, in his administration, any president in history, he has appointed people who are going to decimate the needs of the elderly, the children, the sick, and the poor. So what we are going to do is support those candidates who have the guts to stand up to the 1% and fight for the 99%. Okay, I think my interpretation was correct. So I love it because this is the same type of wishy-washy responses we get when we ask questions to the Democratic uh, Party establishment, if we're lucky enough to have them answered. I mean, someone like Tom Perez will run away from reporters, but I mean, if they actually answer our question, then we get these same wishy-washy responses. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders is giving the establishment a taste of its own medicine. Now, I think that even though I like these answers and it's humorous because I, I, I like that he's kind of giving Jake Tapper the runaround, I think an unequivocal no would have been a lot better. But the reason why Bernie Sanders is not just telling them no is because I still think that he really is intending to work with the Democratic Party. The way the Democratic Party has been run for decades has not worked. We need a total transformation. We've got to open up the party to working people, to young people, and make it crystal clear that the Democratic Party is going to take on Wall Street. It's going to take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry. It's going to take on corporate America that is shutting down plants in this country and moving our jobs abroad. Mm -hmm. The idea that Trump thinks that the Republican Party is going to be the party of working people when he has appointed people to his administration who want to cut Social Security, want to cut Medicare, want to cut... Medicaid, or who want to provide a budget which will give huge tax breaks to billionaires like Trump and then cut back on education and health care for the American people, if that's a party that stands for working people, God help us all. So that clip was kind of frustrating to me because Bernie Sanders hasn't gotten the message that the Democratic Party wants nothing to do with him. They want nothing to do with progressives. I mean, they will make it so that way Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison, they're the poster boy of the party. But 
I mean, they're not really going to embrace the change that progressives are advocating for. So it's frustrating to me that Bernie Sanders thinks he can polish a turd. It's, it's impossible, Bernie. The only thing that you can do really at this point is leave the party, give yourself some leverage, and lead the People's Party. So that way the Democratic Party will be forced to appeal to liberals again. But, you know, Bernie Sanders, he understands that there are institutional biases, and I understand that there are institutional biases, but we've got to have leverage. We have to have a new party to scare Democrats, to threaten them, so that way they know they will lose every single election going forward if they don't start to appeal to voters. Now, here's what I would have said if I was Bernie Sanders, you know, um, given this question about the email list. I would have said, how dare they even ask me for this email list when every single step of the way they've done nothing but shown contempt from my supporters. How dare they? They will never get this list, and if they ever ask again, I leave the party and I form a third party. That's what I would have said, but you know, I think that even though Bernie Sanders is also losing his patience, I think I've lost my patience a little bit more being a Bernie Sanders supporter, because the Democratic Party, it can't be reformed, and until the Justice Democrats take over a substantial portion of the party, it's going to be really difficult for us to get them to reform because they don't want to change. I mean, we've gotten every single indication. We read you guys loud and clear. We're done with you guys. You don't want anything to, to do with us. It's time we leave. And I wish that Bernie Sanders would get that message because if Bernie Sanders abandoned the Democratic Party and stopped caucusing with them, then imagine what that would do to the Democratic Party. They'd be terrified because Bernie Sanders is the only one that is bringing voters into the Democratic Party, even though they continue to reject him and, you know, trash him like Joe Manchin and say, oh, he's not a Democrat. They're using Bernie Sanders. They're exploiting Bernie Sanders, and now they want to exploit his supporters. I find this incredibly insulting because we know what you guys are doing. We're not stupid, and we're not going to fall for it. So even if you do get that list, which I really hope Bernie Sanders never gives to you, Try calling us and asking us for money because the answer will be never gonna get it, 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 never gonna get it. So obviously the left is divided and the Democratic Party is clueless because they know that Donald Trump will inevitably be launching a re-election campaign in 2020 and currently there's been no viable establishment contender to step up to really challenge him. However, the establishment kind of got a ray of hope when someone who we all know and love decided to potentially signal that she might throw her hat in the ring. Have you ever thought that given the popularity you have, we haven't broken the glass ceiling yet for women that you could actually uh, run for president and actually be elected. I, <laughs> I, I actually never thought that that was, I never considered the question even a possibility. I just thought, oh, Oh. Right, because it's clear that uh, you don't need government experience to be elected president uh, of the United that's States, what I thought. right? I thought, oh, gee, I don't have the experience. I don't know enough. I don't know. And now I'm thinking, oh. Okay. All right. Well, oh. okay. Oprah, please. No, don't. Just... She's since kind of wavered on a running for president, but after this video came out, there was Oprah 2020 that was trending on Twitter, 
And now liberal news outlets are starting to speak glowingly about her and they kind of want to draft her. So, I mean, the Huffington Post touts her as the potential first black woman president and Salon even suggested that she could be Trump's worst nightmare. Now, liberals who I actually respect even support this idea. So, actually, it was a while ago when filmmaker Michael Moore appeared on CNN's State of the Union and suggested an Oprah run. Democrats would be better off if they ran Oprah or Tom Hanks, he said. Why don't we run beloved people? Uh, maybe because we don't live in an oligarchy and I actually want someone who's at least mildly qualified to be the president, not some celebrity. So that's ridiculous. Uh, but Oprah isn't the only billionaire who is potentially going to be throwing her hat in the race in 2020. So Disney CEO billionaire Bob Iger is considering a 2020 presidential run as well. And also Mark Cuban, another billionaire, is being urged to run as well. And we also have Kanye West. Okay. I need everyone to understand that this is very, very disturbing. We are watching our country slip further into oligarchy before our very eyes, and we're just okay with it. We're so dissatisfied with Donald Trump that the prospect of running anyone but a celebrity at this point, it just doesn't seem like they could win. Billionaires need to fuck off. They have no business in politics. How can a billionaire who has private jets represent the working class Americans? They don't know what it's like to live off of $7.25 an hour in 2017. They don't. You honestly think that they're going to be the best person to actually be an effective president because they're a celebrity? Think of how unfair that is to the qualified people who might run. Tulsi Gabbard, Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders. Think of how unfair it is to them, actual progressives who care about Americans, who we are pushing to the side for celebrities because we're willing to do anything and put forth any idiot that can defeat Donald Trump. Look, I find this problematic primarily for two reasons. One is because this confirms that politics is no longer a game for you and I. This is a game that only the elites can play. If you're a working class American, you will not run for president and be successful. You have to be an oligarch. You have to be a billionaire or a celebrity to win. It's ridiculous. And another reason why I find this so incredibly problematic is because name recognition goes a really long way. I mean, look at the election outcome. Who were the two nominees? We had Hillary Clinton in the Democratic Party. She had the biggest, uh, the most name recognition. And then we had Donald Trump. He was a celebrity. He had the most name recognition and he won. So the two people with the biggest name recognition won. So in 2020, if people are desperate to defeat Donald Trump and they see Nina Turner or Tulsi Gabbard on the ballot, but then they see Oprah Winfrey, if they don't know much about politics, they're going to go with someone who they know, which is Oprah Winfrey or Mark Cuban. This is really problematic. This is, this is devastating for democracy. Billionaires have no business running for office. Retire, go to your private islands, go to your mansion. We want nothing to do with you. But yet, you know, Democrats are so clueless that they think the only way we can defeat Donald Trump, a celebrity billionaire, is by putting forward another celebrity billionaire. <sighs> We're never... <laughs> We're never uh, going to ever, ever learn our lesson, are we? These celebrity billionaires who Democrats are trying to draft, they are grossly underqualified to run. And the fact that Donald Trump won and is underqualified doesn't mean that now we should make this the norm. How about we go back to running qualified people like Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, people who care about the American people? I, I, I don't know what to say. You know, I saw this and I saw the enthusiasm 
uh, because people think that, you know, Oprah Winfrey would be a viable contender against Donald Trump, and it crushed my soul, guys. It really, it really did. You know, this is some fuckery that I don't ever want to see. I don't want our elections to devolve in between a race between the most famous billionaire. We're better than that. We are supposed to be a country that touts the middle class. We're supposed to have the strongest middle class, but look at us. We're devolving into an oligarchy before our very eyes, and some of us are cheerleading that process on. Yeah, it's very disappointing to say the least. So last week, the White House signaled that it might soon be cracking down on states with recreational marijuana laws. Now, this news came at a White House press briefing where Press Secretary Sean Spicer indicated that this so-called pro-states rights administration will, in fact, be enforcing the federal anti-marijuana laws. I do believe that you'll see greater enforcement of it um, because, again, there's a big difference between the medical use, which Congress has through an appropriations rider in 2014, um, made uh, very clear what the intent of what, uh, what their intent was uh, in terms of how the Department of Justice would handle that issue. That's very different than the, the re recreational use, which is something that the Department of Justice, I think, will be further looking into. Now, even though the administration might take one position on this issue, what it really comes down to is whether or not the Attorney General will enforce the federal laws. Now, if you're wondering what the Attorney General's position is on this, uh, it's not good. It's worse than Trump's, honestly. So, Jeff Sessions is our current Attorney General, and he stated that good people don't smoke marijuana, and just last week, he had some pretty harsh words for legal marijuana. I, as you know, am dubious about marijuana. As states I get, can pass whatever laws they choose, but I'm not sure we're going to be a better, healthier nation than if uh, we have uh, marijuana being sold at every corner grocery store. I see uh, a line in the Washington Post today that I remember from the 80s. Um, this one was, uh, if you smoke, you know, marijuana is a cure for opiate abuse. Give me a break. I mean, you know, this is the kind of argument that has been made out there to just a, almost a desperate attempt to uh, defend uh, the harmlessness of marijuana or even its benefits. I doubt that's true. Maybe science will prove I'm wrong. But at this point in time, you and I have a responsibility to use our best judgment, that which we've learned over a period of years, and speak truth as best we can. My best view is that we don't need to be legalizing marijuana. So on one hand, he's saying that states are allowed to do what they want, but on another hand, he's saying, you know, we really shouldn't be legalizing marijuana because I think it's harmful. Yeah, this isn't something that you want to hear the Attorney General say. Now, he suggested that it's a joke to assume that marijuana can be used to treat the opioid epidemic because, you know, the science just is out on this issue. But hey, maybe science will prove me wrong. But Jeff, you don't have to wait any longer. Science already proved you wrong. According to Time, a growing number of experts, some medical experts, and even some states are considering the idea that medical marijuana should play a critical and legal role in combating the nation's painkiller epidemic. What we hope people take away from this is that when marijuana becomes available as a clinical option, physicians and patients together are reacting as if marijuana is medicine, says Bradford, the Busby Chair in Public Policy at the University of Georgia. And according to a study published in 
2014, states that legalized medical marijuana saw a 25% drop in deaths resulting from opioid overdoses. So after hearing that the White House may soon be enforcing federal laws, i.e. just taking away states' rights to legalize marijuana, and after hearing the Attorney General espouse talking points straight out of reefer madness, well, I was actually pretty devastated at the prospect of legal marijuana going away because I actually live in a state, Oregon, with legal weed. Uh, and it's doing great here. Business is booming. We are taxing weed purchases, and that's going to fund schools. I don't see anything wrong with that. So, you know, it seemed as though legal weed was under threat until all of that fear came to a halt when Jeff Sessions did something that fucked himself over. So he reportedly spoke with the Russian ambassador on two occasions during Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Now, the fact that he spoke with a Russian ambassador isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is that he lied about it under oath. If there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did have, not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. Now, make no mistake about it, Jeff Sessions committed perjury there. Now, he's a pretty big hypocrite because in the 1990s, here's what he had to say about Bill Clinton when he committed perjury. I am concerned about uh, a president under oath uh, being alleged to have committed perjury. I hope that he can rebut that and prove that did not happen. I hope he can show he did not commit obstruction of justice and that he can complete his term. But there are serious allegations that that occurred. And in America, and Supreme Court, and the American people believe no one is above the law. So, Jeff Sessions is a hypocrite and a perjurer, and because of his own stupidity, he no longer has the political capital needed to take on such an uphill battle like marijuana. He no longer may even have the career longevity to take on anything as Attorney General because his time may be limited in that position. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that General Flynn lied about speaking to uh, Russian diplomats, and he had to step down. He was forced to resign. Now, Jeff Sessions is claiming that he will recuse himself, but that's not enough. If you lied under oath, you committed an act of perjury, so you need to step down from that position. But I mean, even if he doesn't actually resign, he still handicapped himself from pursuing anything that's even mildly unpopular as attorney general. And to kind of demonstrate the importance of political capital, well, back in the 1990s, Bill Clinton tried to take on something that was incredibly popular. He wanted to privatize social security. He couldn't do it because a scandal broke that he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. So, Effectively, Monica Lewinsky saved Social Security because Bill Clinton no longer had the political capital needed to take on such an uphill battle. We're seeing the same thing now with Jeff Sessions. So, I mean, speaking of Bill Clinton, this is relevant. If you want to do something that will piss off Americans, you've got to have political capital. And if you're going to touch something as popular as weed, come on, you're, you're done now. You screwed yourself over. So, by being a dumbass, by lying under oath, you inadvertently undercutted your ability to pursue any agendas that the American people disagrees with. You're done, Jeff. It's time for you to step down. You are going to be an ineffectual leader 
as attorney general because you have no legitimacy. You lack the political capital needed to do anything. Now, even if Jeff Sessions didn't commit perjury and he still chose to take on marijuana, I still think you would have lost this battle because you just can't go against the American people. Public opinion polls are disproportionately in favor of marijuana. When you narrow it down to demographics, young people overwhelmingly support marijuana and Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, support the legalization of marijuana and they overwhelmingly support the legalization of medical marijuana. So this is a losing battle. But even if there still is a battle, even if you still try to pursue this, you lost already, Jeff. You fucked yourself over. So let's give it up for Jeff Sessions because this idiot saved marijuana from himself. Great job, Jeff. Congratulations. You played yourself. Tulsi Gabbard is doing what someone in Congress should have done a really long time ago. She's introducing bipartisan legislation to end the federal prohibition on marijuana. So according to Normal, Representatives Tom Garrett and Tulsi Gabbard have introduced bipartisan legislation, H.R. 1227, to exclude marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act, thus leaving states the authority to regulate the plant how they best see fit. The Ending Marijuana Prohibition Act of 2017 eliminates federal criminal penalties penalties for possessing and growing the plant. This legislation gives states the power and flexibility to establish their own marijuana policies free from federal interference. The intent on the Ending Marijuana Prohibition Act of 2017 is consistent with the view of most voters. According to recent polling by Quinnipiac University, 59% of Americans support full marijuana legalization and 71% believe that states, not the federal government, should set marijuana policy. With the Recent confirmation of militant marijuana prohibitionist Jeff Sessions to the position of U.S. Attorney General and with comments from the Trump administration warning of a coming federal crackdown in adult use states, passage of this act is necessary to ensure that medical marijuana patients and others are protected from undue federal interference. Uh, yeah, I love it. This is long overdue. And me personally, I would more support a law that just legalizes marijuana just in all 50 states, but I know that currently in this political climate, that's something that's not feasible. But I mean, this is a step in the right direction, and certainly it's going to catalyze that change. I mean, once the cat's out of the bag, you can't put it back in the bag, and once one state you know, Colorado and uh, I believe Washington were the first two to legalize pot. Well, then we saw other states fall, Oregon, Alaska, and now we have marijuana in a lot of states. So there's no way that you can undo what's already been done. So the time is now to end the federal prohibition on marijuana. I think that this is a win-win situation for anyone involved. And I've, I'm just puzzled because this is a missed opportunity for both parties. Democrats right now, they're so lost. They currently have no idea how to reach out to millennials. This is how you do it. If you come out just swinging in support of marijuana, you not just win some millennials back. You win libertarians. You win conservatives because this is popular across the political spectrum. People don't like being told what to do. The anti-marijuana people have lost. They don't have a winning argument. They're on the wrong side of history. And this is what these states uh, and the federal government and Trump's administration don't realize. If you end legal marijuana... People aren't going to stop smoking marijuana. They're just going to go back to buying it on the black market. But what you do end is the state's ability to tax and regulate marijuana. And then all that revenue, the millions of dollars in Oregon and Colorado and Washington that's going to states, uh, going to schools, that is now gone. It goes to the black market. So that's a missed opportunity. That's stupid. That's not good policy. 
Public policy is supposed to do something that benefits the public. And if you make marijuana illegal, not only does that criminalize something that people should be able to do because it's safer than alcohol, but you make it so that way states don't get this revenue, which is why governors such as Kate Brown in Oregon have come out swinging against Donald Trump's intentions to crack down on marijuana. And let me just say this about Tulsi Gabbard. She is building a really impressive resume for herself in 2020. I mean, if she decides to run for president, she's almost guaranteeing that she'll have support from progressives, not just because of this, but I mean, she also introduced a bill to bring back Glass-Steagall, and she's also one of the few that's willing to tell the truth about the U.S.'s involvement in Syria. So this is a political win. I mean, you cannot lose with this case. The Puritans who are against legalizing marijuana, their days are numbered, okay? They don't, they, they, they can't win this battle. It's a losing battle, so it's time to get on the right side of history. It's time for both parties to come out swinging for legal marijuana because the train has left. The cat's out of the bag. You open Pandora's box. It's legal. And uh, making it illegal will not change the amount of marijuana people smoke. In fact, if you make it illegal, we're probably going to smoke more just to spite you because it'll piss us off. So look, overall, this is a huge step in the right direction. This is hopefully going to have a domino effect. And once this federal prohibition falls then states might be more inclined to legalize marijuana. And that might put us on the road to 50 a lot sooner than it is now because states are reluctant to legalize marijuana when you have this federal prohibition because the supremacy clause does override state laws. So it's time to end the federal prohibition on marijuana. We need to stop regulating it as if it's a dangerous substance, allow states to do this, and allow it to be legal because grown adults can do whatever they want. President Trump recently released details about the new budget that he's going to be proposing to Congress. Now, in this new budget is a huge gift to defense contractors. This budget will be a public safety and national security budget, very much based on those two, with plenty of other things, but very strong. And it will include a historic increase in defense spending to rebuild the depleted military of the United States of America at a time we most need it. So clearly, if he's claiming that this increase to defense spending will be historic, then it's going to be a pretty sharp increase, right? Well, how much precisely? So Trump is aiming to increase military spending by $54 billion, and he claims that this is necessary because the U.S. military has been depleted and needs to be rebuilt. Okay, so let's talk about that for a minute because Republicans always like to talk about how our military is so weak, how it's depleted, and how it needs to be rebuilt. Well, this is how depleted our American military is. So in 2015, more than half of U.S. discretionary spending went towards the military. Now, if you think that that's a lot, that's actually a less amount than in previous years. So in 2013, 57% of discretionary spending went to the military. And when you look at the numbers from 2014, we spent $640 billion on the military. Now, I don't have access to recent data, but in 2014, when you compare our, quote, depleted military to the next eight biggest military spenders, we spend more than all of them combined, and the majority of these countries are allies to the United States. So we spend three times as much on the military compared to China, and about six times more than Russia. So when Republican politicians like to tell you that our military is depleted, it's a complete lie. We have the strongest military in the history of man. We do not have a depleted military. Our military is modern. Our military does not need to be rebuilt. So the question is, why would they lie? What's the point of lying about this? What do they have to gain? Well, you see, 
It's this whole circle of corruption. Republican lawmakers and Democratic lawmakers, they take money from defense contractors. Now, defense contractors are industries like Boeing. They make money when we go to war. So they will give campaign contributions to politicians, and then they'll kind of nudge them. They'll lobby them and say, hey, you know what? We just gave you this contribution of $100,000, or in the case of Donald Trump, $300,000 from defense contractors in total. And they'll say, you know what, why don't we do some more defense spending? And then what happens is, lo and behold, these companies who benefit from defense spending, like Boeing, well, they get a new government contract, and all of a sudden they're making more jets for the American military. Companies are making more tanks for the military, even if we have too many tanks, even if we don't necessarily need this equipment. Just the fact that we're spending... They love it. It's a moneymaker and it benefits the politicians because these same defense contractors who are getting rich and profiting off of whenever we raise uh, the defense spending, well, they buy off our politicians. So it's all just this big circle of corruption and it's so frustrating. And this is a conflict of interest. It's legalized bribery. And it's why Republicans really want you to think that our military is depleted. Like I said, Trump took 300000 from the defense industry. And when you look at warmongers like John McCain, he also took more than 300000 so 300000 is probably about the right price to just completely buy off a politician and get them to be your puppet. So when it's all said and done, this isn't about rebuilding our broken military. This is about defense contractors wanting to make money. So when Donald Trump says we're going to have a historic increase in defense spending... It's completely unnecessary because when you consider all the other issues that are facing the American people, we don't need to be worrying about the profitability of defense contractors and the military industrial complex. One in six Americans face hunger. One in six. That means that nearly 50 million Americans struggle to put food on the table and children are at an even higher risk. So more than one in five children risk hunger. And when you control for children of color, one in three risk going hungry. Now, some states have higher food insecurity rates than the national average, which is about 15%. So this includes states like Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, Tennessee, where about one in five people are literally going hungry. Now, if you don't really care about children going hungry in the U.S., well, here's an issue that should resonate with Donald Trump voters because this is what he claims to care about. He claims that he cares about veterans. However, currently we have 57,000 homeless veterans, nearly 60,000 homeless veterans in the country. So instead of spending money to get them housing, to get them out of homelessness, we're spending more money on war so that way we create even more homeless veterans. This is unbelievable. This is where our priorities lie in the country. We have students facing crippling student loan debt. We have people dying or going bankrupt because they have health insurance, but it won't cover their illnesses. And Donald Trump is choosing to spend money on this. We're not a compassionate country. Our politicians are choosing to put the profitability of defense contractors above people who are actually hurting the poor, the working class, homeless veterans, and not just only homeless veterans, homeless people in general. You know, I hear stories like this and... I'm embarrassed because the rest of the world, they must think we're really a joke. Because who does this? What kind of a country is spending this much on the military when they have people in their own country, one in five, going hungry? When one in five children are going hungry, if you choose to prioritize a military that's already bloated, 
You're just an immoral person. And where are the mainstream media pundits who always ask Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein, you know, if it comes to issues like canceling student debt and instituting a single-payer healthcare system, uh, they always ask, well, how are you going to pay for this? Where are those pundits now asking Donald Trump where he's going to pay for this? We already have a bloated military budget, yet we just hear crickets from the mainstream media pundits. They're not holding him accountable here. They'd rather talk about Trump's connection to Russia rather than this, which I think is a scandal. Anytime the defense budget goes up, I think that's a scandal, but the media doesn't want to cover it, and they're just, they don't care. If you if you want to actually increase the budget for education or healthcare, well, you know what? You better damn well have a plan to pay for that. But if you want to increase the money for a defense spending, no problem. We've got no issue with that. Any politician who is willing to take this dirty money, this blood money from defense contractors to bloat up our already ridiculous military defense budget, they're just bad people. They're bad people. You can cut defense by two-thirds and still be the number one spender in the world, still have the biggest military in comparison with everyone else. Shame on Donald Trump. During his first address to Congress, President Trump made 61 statements in total. Now, fact-checkers deemed 51 of those statements to be false. 51. So the vast majority of the things he said were untrue. Now, for example, he stated during his address to Congress that it was foreigners that were coming to the United States and committing terrorist attacks, but that's actually not true. It's actually domestic right-wing extremists who are the ones carrying out the most terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. For example, sovereign citizens. That's a movement that has carried out an abundance of terrorist attacks on the United States. They've killed police officers. Yet, he's contending that foreigners are the ones who are the biggest threat. No, if you want to know who the biggest threat is, you need to look within the United States because we are the ones who are disproportionately killing each other. Now, out of all the things that he explicitly lied about, there was one portion that I think is not getting enough attention that is really devastating, and it was subtle. So, during his speech... He signaled that he would be gutting Medicaid. So The Intercept explains, Trump did call for something specific that Republicans desperately want and that is completely feasible. Brutal cuts to Medicaid. Of course, Trump didn't put it like that. Instead, he said we should give our great state governors the resources and flexibility they need with Medicaid to make sure no one is left out. That sounds nice, but it's standard Republican code for attacks on Medicaid. In fact, it's lifted almost word for word from Paul Ryan's A Better Way plan for Medicaid, which states that we believe states and individuals should have better tools, resources, and flexibility to find solutions that fit their unique needs. Moreover, both during the campaign and afterward, Trump has endorsed the standard GOP plans for Medicaid. What this would mean in practice is twofold. First, the federal government would significantly reduce spending on Medicaid. Medicaid is run by individual states, but currently, the federal government pays a fixed share of each state's costs, which rise during recessions or due to any number of unforeseeable events. Republicans have long wanted to change the funding mechanism to one in which the federal government pays only a fixed amount per Medicaid beneficiary, called a per capita cap or a fixed amount per state, called a block grant, with states responsible for paying anything past that. 
This would result in larger and larger cuts over time. Most GOP plans would permanently fix federal spending on Medicaid based on a future year and then only increase the fixed amount annually at the rate of inflation, even though medical costs consistently rise faster than inflation. Second, if Trump gets his way, states will receive waivers to change Medicaid in various ways that would be both cruel and require nightmarish bureaucracies to enforce. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker wants to drug test Medicaid recipients. In Kentucky, Governor Matt Bevin hopes to make beneficiaries without dependents work and pay premiums. Worst of all, states such as Arizona are attempting to enact lifetime five-year limits on Medicaid coverage, which could be a death sentence for people with diseases like cancer. And make no mistake about it. If this comes to fruition, which it very plausibly could because Republicans control both houses in Congress, this would be a complete disaster. I mean, Medicaid saves the lives of people who are not able to afford insurance. And if you take that away, if you gut Medicare and you change it in any way that makes people less likely to receive Medicaid who need it, this is a death sentence for people. I mean, think about what they're talking about here. A five-year cap on Medicaid to say, well, you know, we've paid for your chemotherapy for five years, so now we're going to cut you off because you met your lifetime cap. This is something that is immoral. This is not something that we should be fighting any party for. Everyone as human beings should be able to empathize with other human beings and realize, look, I'm in favor of protecting my fellow human beings. I don't want anyone to die because they don't have access to health care. And if you gut Medicaid like Donald Trump is alluding to here, that's what's going to happen. So Donald Trump likes to talk about, you know, boosting our national security and protecting Americans and being the country of law and order. But if you can't even protect Americans from dying because they don't have health insurance, what the hell kind of scumbag government are you? This is proof that we are not a compassionate society. We are an immoral society where we think profits are more important than people. And I think that the American people deserve better than this. So we really need to take all of these little cues here and decode what Republicans are saying because what they're saying is subtle. They know that Medicaid is a very popular program. So that's why they do these things subtly. They speak in coded terms. It's very Orwellian because they want to make sure that we don't get the drift that they're trying to actually gut Medicaid. Well, we're vigilant and we're going to stay vigilant and we're going to watch you guys because you assholes are not going to screw over the American people and get away with it. You've tried it and we continue to show up to town halls and uh, hold you accountable. And that's not going to stop. If you touch Medicaid, if you make it so that way less American citizens are able to live because they can't afford health insurance... We're going to call you out and there will be hell to pay. Believe that. Donald Trump's FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, is preparing for an all-out assault on net neutrality. Now, he's given us many signals and has indicated that he will, in fact, be moving to repeal the FCC's current net neutrality rules. And he just did it again. So The Verge lays it out for us. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai said today that net neutrality was a mistake and that the commission is now on track to return to a much lighter style of regulation. Our new approach injected tremendous uncertainty into the broadband market, Pai said during a speech at Mobile World Congress this afternoon. And uncertainty is the enemy of growth. Pai has long been opposed to net neutrality and voted against the proposal when it came up in 2015. While he hasn't specifically stated that he plans to reverse the order now that he's chairman, today's speech suggests pretty clearly that he's aiming to. Today, the torch at the FCC has been passed to a new generation dedicated to renewal as well as change, Pai said. We are confident in the decades-long cross-party consensus on light-touch internet regulation, and we are on track to returning to that successful approach. Pai's argument 
argument is that internet providers were doing just fine under the old rules and that the new ones have hurt investment. Both of those points are highly debatable. There's little competition in the wired broadband market and consumerists investigated the investment claims in early 2016 and found that internet providers were estimated to spend more in the coming year. Pai has been chairman of the commission for just over a month now and in that time he's already begun chipping away at net neutrality in a few different ways. Approving zero rating, scaling back the transparency rules, proposing to halt major new privacy requirements. After his speech today, it's evident that Pi is just getting started. So this is a guy who's brazen in his willingness to lie to the American people. He said that, you know, we were doing just fine under the old rules. Netflix was under threat from Comcast. Comcast literally tried to kill Netflix in 2014 because they don't like Netflix because Netflix threatens the business of Comcast because people are cutting the cord and millions of people are migrating towards this Netflix model of business and Comcast doesn't like it. So in 2014, all of a sudden, those of you who watch Netflix started to realize that the bandwidth was slowing down to any show that you tried to watch. You'd see the buffering symbol. Well, why is that? Well, it's because Comcast was throttling Netflix bandwidth and they were trying to kill off Netflix. So if you call that doing just fine, then you're clueless. But he knows it wasn't fine. He's a pro-business person. Ajit Pai was a lawyer for Verizon Wireless. So this is an individual that came from the industry that represents the industry, hence why the industry loves Ajit Pai. Now he claims here, uh, I want to go back to this statement. He says that uh, the old rules were better for investment and the new rules hurt investment. That is completely false because if you allow comcast to throttle the bandwidth to new startup companies that's horrible for investment that's terrible for innovation a company who's getting started that threatens the business model of comcast like netflix well if netflix decides well you know what we're going to charge them this exorbitant fee if they want traffic to be smooth to their website they can kill that company off immediately they can say you know what i don't like that the humanist report is criticizing comcast how about we charge the humanist report a million dollars to get traffic to be smoothly flowing to his website again. What he's speaking in is Orwellian terms. He's lying to the American people. He's trying to make it seem as though, you know, if we get government out of the internet, then that's where we'll have more freedom. But you're allowing the government to step away and you're allowing for corporate control of the internet which is a worse scenario than the government regulating the internet. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, Ajit Pai recently blocked a proposal that would have subjected Comcast and Verizon to more stringent data privacy rules. So he's he's allowing them to not only do what they want, he's allowing for corporate fascism, but he's allowing them to not handle our data in a more safe manner. Who would be against that? Who's against these types of things? Someone who's a shill for the industry, someone who's looking out for the profits of the industry because this individual came from within the industry. Ajit Pai is corrupt, and the fact that he worked for Verizon as a lawyer for Verizon sets up a conflict of interest, hence why he's looking out for Verizon and Comcast and the broadband providers that want to screw over the American people. It's sickening. This is corruption. And look, here's the thing. I want Ajit to hear me out loud and clear. If you mess with the internet, this is war. This will be the biggest battle that you will ever face because, again, we got someone worse than you last time. Obama appointed a Comcast lobbyist to be the FCC chairman, and the first thing he tried to do was repeal net neutrality. He tried to allow Comcast to, uh, to do what they want, to kill off companies, to strangle the bandwidth and throttle the bandwidth by creating fast lanes. And guess what happened? 
he not only backed down, he became an ally because we showed up to his house to protest. We flooded the FCC with millions of calls every single month as they were allowing this this period for questioning um, or public feedback, that is. So I would like to see you try this, Ajib, because it's not, it's not going to be a nice battle for you. You will be damaged politically. Your career will be over if you try to touch the internet. So try it, I dare you, and just know that the grassroots resistance that you will face will be overwhelming to where we're not just going to stop you from uh, curtailing our current net neutrality rules. We're going to make you resign. Trust me. So Ajit Pai is not going to get away with his pro-corporate agenda. The American people will stop him and grassroots activists will win at the end of the day because we live in a democracy, not a corporatocracy. Well, that is it for the show today. I want to thank you all for watching and tuning in every single week so loyally. And to everyone who supports the show, who's part of the independent progressive media revolution, who likes and shares the videos, you are responsible for our success as we head towards 100,000 subscribers. It's incomprehensible. So I'm definitely going to be doing something special for that. Uh, maybe I'll, you know, I'll do a Q&A or something like that. So I will, I'll be brainstorming, but please let me know what you'd like to see, because I think that, you know, feedback from the audience is essential because you are the ones that made this show a success. So I have to listen to you. So please give me some feedback as to what you'd like to see me do or, you know, what type of video you'd like. That's just a special occasion. That's just a fun video uh, for our 100th thousand subscriber uh, special again when i say it it doesn't seem real to me that the humanist report will be reaching a hundred thousand subscribers soon but it's great you know we we have big things in the works uh but you know that's it for politics today i will see you all next week have a great day uh i am going to go play zelda breath of the wild i'm very excited i've been looking forward to this for a long time i know you don't care about that but <laughs> i can't contain myself i'm like a child uh so i will see you guys later take care <laughs>